Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 32, and we're joining with the SAD of paratroopers aboard nine planes flying towards Kasinga for the start of Operation Reindeer. It's just before 8 a.m. on the 4th of May, 1978. 343 parachutists from 1, 2, and 3 parachute battalions are about to jump from these planes in an airborne assault on Swapo's HQ in southern Angola. The major punch in this operation was going to be delivered by the Canberra medium bombers and six naval-type low-level buccaneer bombers. Canberras had been in service with the Royal Air Force for around 20 years and could fly at 50,000 feet. They also had a useful range of 2,600 nautical miles. That was reduced because they were loaded with 300 Alpha bombs each and the fuel load was reduced to stay within its all-up weight. The Canberras and Buccaneers could still reach Kasinga in one long haul from Bartokluf Air Force Base in Pretoria, carry out their bombing runs and then land at Grootfontein to refuel. Then they'd rearm for deployment to Chetequera, the second main target of the morning. While both sets of planes approached the target at extremely low level, they would pitch up about five nautical miles from Kasinga to their release height, then pitch down again to just above tree height and head back to refuel. One of the buccaneers left Bartokluf ahead of the other five, it was armed with rockets, both armor-piercing and high-explosive. This aircraft landed at Groesfontein first before continuing onwards, refueling, which would allow it to prowl the area around Kasinga and provide close ground support. Then there was the Dakota plane carrying radio surveillance tech and a small Cessna which would circle Kasinga as the drop took place, staying well out of small arms range. What the South Africans didn't know was that Swapo's HQ was defended by 23mm anti-aircraft guns. On board the C-130s and C-160s, the paratroopers were preparing themselves. Colonel Jan Breitenbach had decided he'd have to jump in. There just weren't enough helicopters to allow him to follow his original plan of flitting about the fight zone in his personal chopper. This meant leaping out of the plane with his A-53 radio dangling from below his reserve chute with the right channel already clicked in, but with the transceiver switched off. He also folded the antenna back into its pocket until he hit the ground, protecting it from the landing impact. All he had to do was turn the switch to on and he would be talking to his company commanders. Well, that was the theory anyway. As he says, the radio was the most vital piece of equipment he had ever carried into battle during his career as a combat soldier. To enhance the chances of a full-scale cock-up, it should be remembered that we were deliberately jumping into a heavily fortified base, he wrote later. Unfortunately for the SADF, the bombing run that was about to take place just after 0800 hours did not achieve its aims. The Canberras were up first, hugging the curves of the earth at high speed. This meant that no one heard them coming inside Kasinga. The Canberras arrived almost in silence, and just short of their IP, or initial point, they lifted their noses and climbed to a few hundred feet, spewing the alpha bombs from their open bomb bays. This laid a carpet of spherical devices that exploded just above head height after they bounced. Two lines of Canberras rushed over the town from north to south and side by side, but many of the devices actually ended up bouncing into the bush and exploding over no one. As the paratroopers were going to discover, the defenders had been shaken but not broken by that first run. One minute behind the Canberras were the buccaneers, and they had an even bigger structural weakness built into their bombs they were about to drop. These 1,000-pounders were World War II stock with simple impact fuses. Because the buccaneers were climbing as they let their bombs go, some ended up missing the town completely. The 1,000-pound bombs simply dug their noses into the sandy Angolan soil and blew out huge craters but caused little damage to the town. 
and the swamper soldiers and mercifully civilians within. It was a case of underkill, luckily for many of the inhabitants. Almost all the Portuguese-era buildings survived intact, while the Alpha bombs left the buildings pitted with shrapnel but not badly damaged at all. Of course, the civilians inside these buildings survived with few casualties. That would be disputed later by Swapu, but we'll get to that story in a while. The result of this massive bombardment was a massive disappointment. There were a series of 32 deep craters in the soft sandy soil, the blast effects having been channeled upwards instead of along the ground. Only two buildings in the entire town were destroyed. That's a very low conversion rate. Two mirages still had a job to do. Ostensibly designed as interceptor aircraft, here they were providing ground support. They rolled into steep dives and strafed the camp area to the northwest of town with their 30mm guns. Meanwhile, the aircraft carrying paratroopers were approaching the drop zone or DZ from the north. One Mirage pilot, Commandant Oliver Holmes, spotted the lead C-130 in the distance as he strafed the camp. The Mirages climbed back to a few thousand feet, or what they called their perch, to get ready for a second run at the target. On the ground, panic had broken out. Civilians were trying to get out of the way. Swapo and other soldiers were readying themselves for what they now knew was a major assault. Of course, at this stage, they still expected it to come from ground-based vehicles. Many had been wounded by the shrapnel from the Alpha bombs, but what the SADF didn't know was that the most lethal part of the base had been completely missed by the planners and the Canberras, the Buccaneers and the Mirages. That was the heavily defended Swapo headquarters and the anti-aircraft battery deployed next to it. The intelligence boys had somehow missed both buildings, believing the HQ was to the east of the main road through town. That was actually a store. The HQ was on the west side and slightly north of that position, and Swapo's strategic building was not only intact, so was the anti-aircraft battery. That was going to have consequences for the paratroopers, as you'll hear. The men, meanwhile, were swaying back and forth in the C-130s and C-160s, some nauseous from the adrenaline. Stand up, hook up, came the command. Fit equipment, check equipment. Tell off for equipment check, they responded with. 32 OK, 31 OK, 30 OK, 29 OK, all the way down to 3 OK, 2 OK, 1 OK, and then stick OK. Now they were hanging on to the overhead cables with their left hands for the port sticks and right hands for starboard sticks. While the pilots watched the smoke rise from the bombed town, the parachutists stared at the rivets on the fuselage. The dispatchers on board were calm and they knew as they opened the doors anything could be waiting for the men. For once, they didn't yell or jerk harnesses, nor did they pass the usual snide remark. One dispatcher lit a cigarette and walked down the rows, giving the men a blast of nicotine. The C-160 piloted by Major Mitch Mitchell had already turned along the cutline carrying a seething Major Wesley de Beer of E Company. They were the reserve, and Breitenbach had promised de Beer that they'd see action later should the Cubans and Fapla attack from their Tichibatiti base, 16 kilometers south of Kasinga. The planes drone onwards with some on board feeling particularly heavily loaded. These were the mortar carriers, the machine gunners and the anti-tank gunners, along with those who carried the heavy medical kits with those saline drips. The jumpmaster gave the five minutes to go sign. The port and starboard doors were opened, and those in front, including Breitenbach, felt the cool air rushing past. A dispatcher shouted, Action stations! And a rifleman by the name of Corporal Jacobs readied himself. Everyone now looked slightly sick. No one knew exactly where they were in Angola, which added to the feeling of disorientation. 
The pilot climbed steeply from 50 feet to above 600 feet in a few seconds and the G-forces knocked the men to their knees. The plane then leveled out and Jakobs and Breitenbach spotted Kasinga below and to their left. They also saw the last mirage ending its strafing run over the camp. Everything was covered in smoke and dust. Then Breitenbach noticed that the smoke and dust was streaming off quickly owing to a strong northeasterly wind that was blowing. That was going to cause chaos. The wind was far stronger than anticipated for 8 o'clock on a May morning. The wind blowing the smoke was also a package of fast-moving air in which the planes were flying and Breitenbach realized that Kasinga was starting to drift astern. Switch on the green light, he almost shouted but said it inwardly. Then there it was, blinking on, time to go. Jakobs jumped, followed by number two and then Breitenbach. They fell into the slipstream, then the jerk as the parachute opened and the whip sound as it filled with air. Most unfortunately, we're using the PT-10 chutes, which had no modifications, a pumpkin as it was known. Breitenbach, however, looked up and he was happy to see that he was riding a steerable. This meant he could move himself into a position to land into the wind and hopefully in a clear space, avoiding the trees. That was fortunate now because the area below the men was covered with the Miombo forests. The air was full of men, long lines of double sticks suspended in the morning light drifting along in the strong wind. Those out first realized they were heading directly for the river. Breitenbach was dangling facing the wind and Kasinga, but more than half of the town seemed to be far to his left and he knew instantly that most of his men were going to miss their disease. Worse for these men, the forest and river was not the only danger. There was a hill to the south around 100 meters high that had not been spotted in any of the photographs collected by intelligence. Breitenbach heard the unmistakable sound of anti-aircraft guns opening fire along with the sharp-pitched AK-47s. Some of the commanders in the air at that moment thought they'd missed Kasinga completely and had been dropped at Techumoteti. If so, then a bloodbath awaited. Techumoteti was where the Cuban and Fapla forces were based and they had tanks. Most of the assault troops were now heading west or southwest of the river, way off their drop zone. It was turning into a shambles. Swapo said later that the bombing had destroyed a medical cabin and killed a large number of soldiers gathered at the parade ground in the center of town. However, the evidence gathered afterwards shows clearly that most Swapo were not at the parade ground because the parade had taken place just after 7 and had ended by 8 when the bombing run began. This is just the first of a series of facts disputed by both sides. One thing, however, is not disputed. When the first wave of bombers came over the town, some of the Swapo soldiers waved, believing they were friendly aircraft. They'd come from the north, after all. The pilots of the C-130s and C-160s explained later that they couldn't see the markers because of the smoke and dust blown into the air by the bombing runs. This meant most pilots gave the green light more than three seconds too late. That sounds ridiculously tiny, but when an airplane is flying at 250 kilometers an hour and the wind is from the north, three seconds turns into hundreds of meters. And the assault team had 450 meters to work with between the town and the river. You can begin to understand how the planners, including Breitenbach, were somewhat optimistic. Very few of the paratroopers actually landed where they were supposed to. Most were way off course. Boerter's platoon, which was supposed to land near the northeastern veterans' camp, actually landed on it. The soldiers they faced, however, were raw recruits, not vets, and that battle did not last very long. Intelligence had told Boerter that the swap of fighters here were vets hard-bitten by experience in Ovamaland, but in reality they were greenhorns. 
Witz 32-man platoon was supposed to land 400 meters east and west of the ring road north of Kasinga. Instead, they all landed east to the right of the town. And worst, discovered as they descended that the area was actually heavily bushed with some high trees. It was a forest. Many paratroopers ended up suspended 20 or 30 feet off the ground here, and one of the first SAD of casualties was recorded. A rifleman managed to cut himself loose from the trees, only to crash heavily to the ground and knock himself out. He remained unconscious for the duration of Operation Reindeer and was carried through the battle by his fellow troopers. He woke up much later at One Mill Hospital in Pretoria after being Kazavaked and all he remembered was that he had jumped at Kasinga. But it wasn't all catastrophe. Slowly the South Africans began to recover from this windswept mayhem. Witz, grouping after his landing, went well. The men moved quickly into position and within 25 minutes they were drawn up at the intersection at the north of the town. Remember, that's where the ring road to the east meets up with a ramrod straight main road through the town. The stopper group north was in business. His assault group of 20 men lay east of the road to the right as you look at the map, while his 10-man fire support group lay on the west side, the left. However, two sections of troops from Alpha Company's platoons went over or into the Kabunga River, along with most of Bravo Company. Given that these two companies were tasked with clearing most of Kasinga, they were now in a bad situation. Commandant Brandt was marooned west of the river along with two forward air controllers who were supposed to direct the close air support, joined by the mortar platoon and the sapper officers. Airborne assaults are notoriously difficult. You're throwing yourself into the environment at the whim of the information collected over time, the intel. And the intel had missed an entire hill of 100 meters altitude inside the conflict zone. They'd missed the anti-aircraft battery. They'd missed Swapo's HQ. And they'd missed the weather. The paratroopers also came down amongst tall trees and many were hooked up. Others went straight into the river. These included Brigadier Duplessis, who was part of the mortar platoon. The rest of his men were on the opposite side of the river, the west bank. Both doctors landed in the river and they had a decision as they hit the water. Jettison the medical bags or drown. They chose the former. Colonel Breitenbach touched down on the east side. Most of his men were across the fast-flowing river and he quickly switched on his radio to begin the process of regrouping for the assault. At the same time, Swapo was not passive. Their fighters had realized quickly they were in the middle of a full-scale assault and were firing on the paratroopers. The entire town was a fortress, and despite Swapo's claims later, Swapo's men and women were going to fight back. Gerrit Swat of Alpha Company was trying to aim his parachute at the eastern bank, but it was touch and go. The wind was pushing him along. As he looked towards the town, he could see Swapo's soldiers opening fire at him, running, stopping to take aim and let loose a few rounds, then running again. These are terrifying moments for any soldier, but particularly for those hanging from parachutes trying to avoid the AK rounds. You can't shoot back. Swat managed to land on the east bank of the river, which was steep. He was the only officer who landed on the east side from Alpha, while about two-thirds of his men had also avoided the river and landed on the town side, fortunately. Two other sections of Alpha were wading and half-swimming through the river to reach the eastern bank. The battalion leadership and most of Bravo Company landed across the river to the southwest of the town and now had to ford the strong current. While Swapo was trying to figure out where the attack was coming from, this bought the paratroopers time. The South Africans made rapid progress according to the orders and moved away from the dangerously exposed river bank. They also began to establish communications with Breitenbach and other sections and Alpha and Bravo companies were now getting organized. 
But after Swart of Alpha Company counted his men, he realized two whole sections were missing. Where were they? He couldn't wait any longer. They'd have to find their own way into town. Swart ordered his own extreme right flank to make contact with Bravo Company's extreme left flank. The only problem was there was no Bravo Company. They were still trying to cross the river further south of his position. Kasinga was about a kilometre away to the northeast of Swat. He began trying to figure out where the town was. They couldn't see it. The bush obscured their view, but he could hear the gunfire. After a few minutes, they found a track and plotted the direction to the town with map and compass. And for the first time then, he realised just how far out of position he was. At that moment, Breitenbach called and Swat explained where he was. The colonel told him that the direction of the assault had been changed. It was no longer west to east, but pretty much south to north. Bravo Company's Captain Hugo McQueen was now crossing the river from further south, and he had a few extra items. He carried in a tin of oysters, biscuits, and a water bottle that was full of brandy and water. That was his traditional celebration combination, he told writer Willem Steenkamp later, and that it was a moment of ignorant borgadocio. He planned to share the luxuries with his friend Gerrit Swart a little later. McQueen was also one of the few who'd seen with shock that the planes were being fired on by Swapo's anti-aircraft battery. The tracers just missed the plane, and he had jumped, and as he landed on the west side of the river, just missing an acacia thorn tree, he heard the anti-aircraft guns again clearly. There were also machine guns roaring to the north, which was then that he realized that his men were going to have to traverse around two kilometers of ground before arriving at Kasinga. Phase one of the attack was a total write-off. Only a fraction of Bravo was in position. The regrouping order for the assault, which was supposed to take 15 minutes, was impossible. The South Africans had the making of a first-class disaster on their hands. But McQueen and others to the south weren't aware that at this stage, north of Kasinga, Witt and Boerter were already fighting their way into town, and Delta Company south of Kasinga were preparing to attack their main target, the engineer complex. Small groups of Swapo fighters now appeared in the bush, firing on Alpha Company and others. How were they going to make it into town? We'll have to leave that answer for next episode. Thanks to those who've sent messages of support. It really helps with details and facts. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice, iTunes and Spotify in particular. It helps elevate the SA Border Wars story. Thanks to Hedy again, who has provided a great deal of support in the background. And also remember to head off to Johan's detailed website, warinangola.com. You can find maps of Kasinga and the order of battle. It may make things a little clearer. Until next, goodbye.